0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray.
1: Father, will you help us this morning as we now turn to your word to hear it, to understand it? to respond to it, and I pray to be changed by it. I pray that you would, to each of us in the particular places where we are, with the particular needs that we have, will you meet us and, with your word, change us and grow us and mature us. Lord, we just, we just say to you, help. We need you, so send your spirit here upon us and build your church. Thank you. Thank you for being trustworthy and now for speaking through your scripture to us, your people. Amen. There is something in the American cultural mindset that is always ready to love a winner. Accomplishment, victory, power, triumph, it's what we want. And everything that comes along with making it. Sense of approval. Followers on social media and the influence that comes with becoming an influencer. Just the power of it and the wealth. But the the, the success, the, the, the triumph, it's what we're after here in America. And actually everywhere else where people live, really, because it's actually kind of a human thing. But it's a particular problem where societies have already had some measure of success, have already tasted riches, have experienced the rise and and the rush that power and influence brings, and kind of like a drug, have become hooked on it and can't live without it. We want it and we chase it. Success. In America and in places like Corinth as well. Of course, the Bible would have us to think quite differently about the kind of life we should be pursuing, the kind of life we want, what the good life is. We, we could say a whole lot more about that, but this morning as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're turning our attention towards a slightly different issue, one that lies right alongside of this erroneous love of worldly glory. Right next to that is the problem of gullible willingness to follow any and everything and any and everyone who will get us there. Any person and any methodology that will deliver us from trial and hardship to a life of triumph, we're there. In America and sometimes even in the church. Sometimes even Christians think like this. We are far too willing to accommodate methods and people that will get us a winner. Corinth was there too, and that's what we find in chapter 10 and following in the book of 2 Corinthians, about which I need to make some extended comments here so that we can kind of get oriented to what we're going to meet here. Last week, we finished 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with its emphasis on giving. We saw that for a couple of chapters, and and its emphasis on giving that was driven by the grace of God resting on the people there in the church. And Paul saw that and then ended this chapter 9, and really all of 1 through 9 on a, on a happy note, a positive note. Yes, throughout those chapters we saw that there is still some, some strain Paul talked about some strain that existed between him and the church, and, and particularly between some false teachers who were kind of lurking on the fringes and this this kind of vocal minority that they 'd kind of persuaded from within the church, they were against him and, and looked at Paul negatively, but they were in a minority there, but in a minority. He talked about previously remember chapters two through four these men were, were peddlers of the Word of God they They held up the the Old Testament and the teachings of Moses as if that was what we are supposed to be following or to be made right with God. And they did it in a very persuasive way. They're around. But the good news was Paul heard from Titus when Titus came back to meet him in Macedonia that the church is turning away from them. And as has kind of reaffirmed its, its following of you, its affection for you as you're communicating to them the will and the way of God. God's grace is upon them, and Paul is confident, and so he finishes chapter 9 on a glad note, and it would be beautiful if the book ended right there. But it doesn't, because, as we will easily observe in the next several chapters, there is a significant change in tone here at the end. It's so stark that some have suggested that actually this is another letter from some other time kind of stuck here in the Bible next to it. For a variety of reasons, that's not the case. But there likely is a a time break here when something happened and Paul's writing purposes and writing mind changed. We don't know. We're just kind of reading between the lines here with, with all the material that we're going to see in the coming weeks trying to interpret what happened. So it doesn't expressly say, but it, it seems like things were going well. Titus left. Titus met him in Macedonia, told him things were going well. Paul kind of gathers his thoughts and thinks about, okay, now we can move on with the, the collection of the money for, for Jerusalem. And he begins to put all that down and, he, and he's writing and he's, he's encouraged. And meanwhile... Back in Corinth, with Titus gone, the false teachers there and their supporters struck back and began to persuade the church once again to come on, follow us. And using their their eloquent, gifted speech, they were good talkers. And that was really important in culture in that day. Somebody who could stand on a stage and explain ideas and do it eloquently and beautifully and, and argue ins and outs of all kinds of different positions and could draw a crowd and therefore draw a lot of money and be influential and powerful and have a following and many, 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 many likes. That was that was a big deal then and Paul did not do that, but these guys did. and they did that also along with a with a show of some hard to explain supernatural stuff power Visions and dreams and trances, or at least claims of visions and dreams and trances, and ecstatic dancing and and speech where they went kind of beside themselves. It was a remarkable show. Supernatural, and it must be of God. It's religious. It emphasizes Moses, and it's strident, and it's calling people to obey and follow God. And it is eloquent with large crowds and big money. And man, look at this. People in the seats and money in the offering plate. This is how you build a ministry. This is the show. This is where it's at. That's what those guys brought along with them. And perhaps they laid low when Titus was in town. But he leaves, and they rolled all this back out and began to pull the church along again. And then someone faithful dashed off towards Macedonia to tell Paul, what you've heard is not actually the case anymore. Things are going poorly. Really disappointing. Really disappointing. And so in alarm, Paul quickly pivots to address this wishy-washy fickleness in the church. And he leaves the first part of the letter intact because there is still a lot that's very instructive and very commendable and now is actually somewhat ironically convicting. As Paul recounts, the grace of God in them and how encouraged he is by their following of the Lord, writing that while they are walking away. Ironic and perhaps convicting. So he leaves all that here and then writes 10, 11, 12, and 13 to call the church back and cast out, cast out, cast out false and destructive and misleading. So with that extended explanation, that, that is going to be touched on numerous times in different ways in the following chapters. We'll see some verses that expressly say some things and that hint at some things. That's kind of what we're going to meet here at the end of this book. So with that, let's, let's begin. 10, 1 to 6 this morning. Let me read it and then I'll draw out two observations that are going to get us beginning to think about how we should define success in the church and what methods we should embrace, what we should follow in order to get us there. So let me read 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. One to six. So two observations. One, it's kind of about what we put off and one, we, what we put on, or what we reject and what we embrace. Here's the first. We must carefully reject worldly methods as we live and minister in the world. We must carefully reject worldly methods as we live and minister in the world. We live here in the world and we're trying to grow as Christians and we're trying to be effective ministers ourselves personally and we have a church that we want to see thrive and grow. And so as we go about this personally and and corporately, We have to be careful to reject what's false, not just what's false in doctrine, false teachers who are teaching something that's incorrect, but also what's false in methodology, philosophy and and approaches, those that conform to the world, those that are human, that are of people and not of God. That's what Paul's getting at here for starters. Verse 1, he begins by entreating them, and you've got to catch, there's a lot of sarcasm in these next chapters here. So you've got to catch the sarcasm here. But he's not being sarcastic when he entreats them. And he, and he says, I myself, Paul, very personal, I entreat you, I, I plead with you. This is Paul, the apostle of God, who was earlier... Emphasize so repeatedly how he is the one speaking for God. He says, "I'm on my knees in front of you, pleading on the basis of the meekness and gentleness of Christ." Two similar words: meek and gentle. One meek more emphasizes more an, an inner heart, and gentle is more an external expression of that inner heart. Meek and gentle. And Paul says, that's me, and makes a gigantic point right away in using these two words, because he says, that's me, and that's what Christ is like. Or as Christ himself said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Same deal. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm I'm the king. I am Jesus the Christ. So if you want to go up here, I'm I'm here. I'm the one through whom all things are made. I sustain all things. All things exist for me. I am Jesus, the Lord. And if you come to me, what you will find is, though I am a lion, I don't have teeth to tear or a fist to crush, but I instead have warm breath. And I have a a big arm to to cradle and I've got a, a wet nose that's tender. I'm a lion who is so very welcoming. Gentle and lowly. Ready to hold and cover and care for you and welcome you in. That's what you'll find in me. That's Christ, says Paul. That's how he comes to you. That's how I come to you in his name. Dependence on him. And not in some sort of a force of personality and some sort of a dominance and some sort of a power play and some sort of a wielding of authority. I come like him, for him. That's what's appropriate. Now, why does he make that point? Because of the accusation that's behind the rest of verse 1 and this whole deal. And here's where some of the sarcasm comes in. This is the problem at, at its core in Corinth and often in America. We are impressed with glory and might and kind of shazam sort of works of God. We love our heroes And our leaders to be men's men, even those who are women. You notice how much if a woman is a respected leader, how much like a man she is? Because that's what we really want. Somebody who is square-jawed and broad and shouldered and strong and hard-nosed. And there's a problem, starts kicking butt and taking names. We see that, and we say, that's somebody who's impressive. There's a leader, somebody I want to follow. Someone who is persuasive and forceful and really knows how to take the bull by the horns and get stuff done and build a kingdom like a king would. And Paul, my goodness, when Paul comes to town, when he's face to face, he's humble. Which we've got to like kind of back out of our, our Christian lingo and understanding. That is not a compliment. That is a straight up insult. Because in the Greek and Roman culture of the day, and frankly in a lot of culture today, humble is another word for weak and afraid. A scaredy cat. How many leaders do you want to follow who act like scaredy cats? That's Paul. Man, when you write us a letter, Paul, when you are hundreds of miles away and somebody else is going to bring the letter, well, then you put it to us. Then you are bold and direct and confident, yeah, sure, okay. But when you show up in person, as verse 10 puts it, frankly, you just exude weakness, and nothing you say, no way you carry yourself, no way that you speak impresses anybody. I mean, you just kind of stammer along, you speak really softly, and you just kind of like you know, like wilting wallflower, sort of, what? Ugh. That's what they're saying about him. Nothing about that says divine power to the human eye. And so these super apostles, as he calls them in chapter 11, sarcastically, they think they are apostles superior to me. Okay, we'll call them the super apostles. Verse 2, they are some of those who suspect Paul of walking according to the flesh, which does not mean sinful, like Paul often uses flesh to describe sinful. It means just like flesh and blood like walking according to, maybe as the NIV puts it, worldly standards, just like people, like flesh and blood, like a mere man. These false teachers and all of their human persuasiveness and captivating eloquence and apparent supernatural power and the ability to draw a crowd say, look, this here is the power of God at our disposal and right over there is a meek, weak, scaredy cat who is just a guy not connected to heaven like us. He claims to be an apostle of God, but if he had the power of God, there'd be something powerful and successful and captivating going on with him. But look at the, look, look at that! it isn't there. It's here with us. We're the show. I'm saying this in several different ways here because you've got to see the, the the 180 degree opposite. They are on completely different planes and, and Paul's response ironically starts off agreeing with them and then turning it. Paul's response, verse one, yep, that's me, dot, 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 and Jesus, that's me, And Jesus, the king, that's how the king is, meek and humble. And and yes, you're right, there is, uh, one of the two of us does have the power of God on him. Yep, that's true. And you're right, one one of the two of us is walking in this world in an effective way. Uh Uh-huh, yep. But it's not who you think it is. And exhibit A is Who's most like the king? Not the one acting all kingly. The one acting meek and humble and lowly. Me. I do walk in the world, but I'm not actually walking like you're walking in the world. I'm walking in the world fighting. And I'm fighting not with methods like you use. I'm fighting with methods that are actually tied to heaven. We'll go into that a little bit later. But there's this 180 degree... Opposites that then get switched. And that's, that's huge in this setting here. Paul does not shrink back and say, oh, no, no, I, I'm actually quite different than you think I am. I am like that because Jesus is like that. Now, Jesus could for sure be bold and confident and assertive and commanding and harsh. He cleaned out the temple after all. And you see this in verse 2. I sure hope I don't have to be like that when I come to the temple of the Lord in Corinth. I don't want to have to clean out the temple. I will. I don't want to. Because Jesus did do that, but not habitually. That that wasn't his, his, his natural bent. Nor is it mine. Gentle and lowly is the natural bent. And that's mine too. And so... Church, verse two, I beg of you. Still on his knees, entreating. I beg of you, temple of God in Corinth, please act like you must. But I'm asking, please act so that I don't have to. What does he want them to do? What's he begging them to do? But this is the point for them and and it's, it's this first point for us here. He wants them to interject themselves, especially the leaders of the church, to step in and reject this opposite view, this opposite approach and methodology. For the sake of cleansing the church, Step in, I beg of you, so that I don't have to cleanse the church myself. And that would include you, the church, if you don't do this. He's asking them, but if you look at verse 6, what may be a slightly confusing turn of phrase there, actually what he's saying is that this is required of them. It would be complete obedience for them if they were to listen to what he's asking them to do. They have to. It's, it's the church's job to guard the church. It's especially the leader's job to, to protect the flock, not just from false teaching, but from false methodology that puts you in a way pursuit of the world rather than pursuit of God. It would be your obedience to do this. Now, when you do that, then I will come. Then I will come, and I'll set right what's needed to be set right with those other guys. But I'm not going to come until you've cleaned house yourself. Please do so. I don't want to do that. So that's the call. Please act to set those ones out to reject what is worldly. What would that look like for us to respond to that? Well, we're we're not exactly in that situation. And this is just the beginning of this section, so he'll have a lot more to say about this. But, but just right out of the gate, if we think about the general situation they were facing, and we want to say, how should we kind of feel that and respond to that ourselves? A couple things come to my mind. One, maybe a little more obvious. We are, we're prone to be tempted by the same kind of stuff. The same things draw us that drew them. I can think of Two, I I won't list them, but one of them is uh, very, very well known right about now. It's in the news. I can think of two well known Christian leaders who have completely fallen now, but had wide, massive, even international followings. And in retrospect, Those followings were built very much on, in the one case, a very authoritative, powerful, taking charge, making things happen sort of ministry. And the other one was very clearly built on man, that guy can talk and argue and explain. That's in the news right now. Man, that guy can talk and argue and explain and make stuff clear and draw a crowd and persuade people. Never mind what's actually going on. We're just captivated by the appearance of it all. Now, those are big, well-known people. Okay, they're not coming to this church. They're not here. Same thing for us here, though. We need to be careful. We need to be on guard and careful to reject anything that is that is worldly in its approach, that leans into human skill and crowd drawing and influence and power. Amazing charisma and interpersonal skills and the ability to be a good talker are still highly persuasive to us. And we need to be careful with that. I think that's Rather obvious from this, and it does become a little easier if we then turn around and particularly in the second point, we begin to compare it to what the opposite is because you can then kind of see some contrast. And that's necessary because, of course, eloquence in itself is not wrong, and there are situations that need strong leadership. That's not automatically wrong. So it's helpful to see the, what, what does he really mean by, by contrast. We'll see some of the what he actually embraces, what he wants us to grab hold of and follow. But that's, that's the first area that my mind goes. We need, we need to be on guard and careful to reject worldly methods and worldly leaders who appeal to what is appealing and can draw a crowd and point at the results and say, therefore, it must be of God, right? Not necessarily. Human things draw crowds too. That's the first place my mind goes. But the second one I think is actually a little more important because it stands behind the other one. It's why that human methodology and why that worldly approach is tempting in the first place. It's what we have to reject before we reject those methods. They're tempting. Those leaders grab us because of what they promise, and then often do produce a winner. And we desperately want to win. We want to know I'm in the right, and lots of people agree with me, and this is effective, and it works. We we very much, particularly because of our history, we very much feel I think we're starting to lose in our context, in our country. I think we're starting to lose. I want to win. Who can help us win? Who can help us to stand back, to gain ground, and to be like that again? Maybe we'll never be that, but we'll be we'll be that. I feel like we're we're starting to fall away. Help. Well, someone will come along, some ones with some methods will come along and they will promise and will be able to produce numbers and crowds, dollars. Political pull even. That that will happen. The problem is we have to ask ourselves and reject the lust after victory. Not because there's no victory, but because we have our timelines wrong. He is a king, and it is a kingdom, and it does come, and it does win. When, though? That's the question. We desperately want that to be now, and it isn't now. We get our timeline wrong, and we often define winning wrong. Frankly, we've got a different definition of success. It's a worldly definition of success. We're looking for acclaim and behavior change, rather than the development of Christ-like character and love of the one true God, as He's revealed Himself in Jesus. That's success, actually, when the human heart changes and becomes like Christ and loves the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's success, when that happens in a person. And that cannot be accomplished by worldly methods. And it often, on this proper timeline, does not happen very much now. That's what we need to watch for before we watch for the methodologies. What do we want? We want true success. We want something that is about heart change, something that makes people like Christ and develops their love and builds a church that's after him, never mind the numbers. And that kind of success can't come from worldly methods, but does come from godly methods, and that's the second point. So here's the second point then. <coughs> we should we should man. <laughs> Embrace godly methods because they alone are able to conquer the human heart. That's what we're after, conquering the human heart. And only godly methods can do that. At verse 4, Paul clarifies that he's, he's living here, but he's actually not just living, he's waging war and doing it in a certain way, not by worldly methods, but by divine ones. He's embracing godly methods, fighting a spiritual war, which we are all engaged in, and this is echoing language you're probably familiar with from Ephesians chapter 6. There is a war, and it is not a physical war, a physical struggle, it's a spiritual one. And so, verse 4, I'm not going to use fleshly or worldly weapons for that. They don't actually have any divine power. They aren't of God. But the weapons that I do use have power to destroy strongholds. He's, He's working through a military analogy here. So Paul's alluding to a walled city, or maybe for us, we're maybe more familiar with the idea of a castle. If you think of a big castle with the big outer walls and a gate. Well, those would be lines of defense, but the last line of defense would be on the inside, the inner part, the stronghold. And somebody brought me water. How about that? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So you get the last, the last line of defense in the inner part, the, the stronghold. And that stronghold is there because invaders come, they, they swarm over the walls and they punch through the outer gate, but then they get trapped in the courtyard and shot down because they can't actually take the last inner part. And so it looks like success. As everybody goes into the city, And then everybody comes out of the city, the ones who are still left alive, you realize that did not work. Why? Because something inside was impenetrable. A stronghold. Well, to step out of that analogy for a minute, what what Paul's saying is that it may look like we have somehow overcome the defenses and people have been persuaded, but we haven't punched through the stronghold yet that's on the inside. The heart has not been changed. And that cannot happen with human oratory. It cannot happen with discipline and the teaching of the law and trying harder to try harder and getting after people when they don't try hard enough. It can't actually change the heart. But Paul's weapons can. His weapons have power to destroy the stronghold. That is, verse 5, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's not just about the ability to win an argument between people. Clever logic and the ability to talk well can do that. He means to destroy arguments the things that exist inside of us and sometimes get voiced but the things that exist inside of us that are the reasons that arise in our insides in our hearts as to why we don't trust Christ fundamentally all those arguments inside of us are lofty opinions this is the human problem that we are we are stuck in pride by nature We are self-confident and self-trusting in my self-wisdom as I, the human being, look out at the world and I decide that what I think is right and good and reasonable and best, and so I'm going to go with my opinion. And sometimes, probably usually, that's not really very rational, it's more instinctive. I don't like consciously think through and then decide to go against God. I just lurch that way. Naturally, it's my bent. There is something in the human heart that is resistant. It's from the very beginning. It, this is, it's the core human problem. From the very beginning, someone whispered in our ear, can you really trust God? I don't think you can. You should not. And we have been on that track ever since, holding him at bay, believing ourselves, such a lofty opinion of me, I have. We trust ourselves and our innate ability to correctly interpret the world and to understand and know what's best and to properly judge reality. We think it and we feel it and so it's true or at least true for me. That's not going anywhere in the face of human argument. That's not going anywhere in, in, in the face of, of feel-good emotional music. Paul's point, that only comes crashing down when God wields a divine weapon against it. That kind of heart defense, that thick stone wall only collapses when it is pounded, when it is broken by divine weaponry. Like what? Not like the law of Moses. Not like powerful preaching and, and music. Paul lays it out in Ephesians chapter 6. He mentioned it also in, in chapter 6 of this book. How he goes about this fight. If you pick the words out of Ephesians 6, out of the armor there, he goes about it with truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace peace. In faith, prayerfully preaching the Bible. That's it. That's it. Character-wise, in truth and in righteousness and peace, gentle and lowly. I'll preach the gospel that makes peace, praying that the Spirit of God takes that message found in the Bible and bangs through the rock of the human heart and turns it into flesh and makes it live. That has always been the way all through the Bible. This morning in, in our life training class about discipleship, we looked at the, at the story of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel where God says to Ezekiel, the prophet, look at these dead bones. They're not even collected together as skeletons. They're just a, a heap of bones. Can they live? I don't know, Lord, only you know. Yeah, they can live. I'm going to speak to them my word and they will live. They will come together and be people, and I'll put my spirit in them and they'll be alive again. That's God by his word. And what Paul says is my methodology is really simple. I love people and I preach the Bible. And I love people. And then again, I preach the Bible. And after that, I love people and I preach the Bible. And all between all that, I'm praying that God would make the impossible happen. That the stronghold of the human heart would come down. And then what would result is that people would be captured. That every thought would be taken captive to obey Christ. That's how it happens. I don't make that happen. No person can. I love people graciously, humbly, meekly like Jesus did and I lay out in front of them the truth of how God in Christ acted to save and then I pray that the Spirit of God would open eyes and bring dead people to life and that what little light there is in me would shine out of this cracked pot and the pot wouldn't impress but the light would. That's my hope. That's what I'm leaning into and that's what works. Part of the argument he's gonna make is that's what Jesus did, and part of the argument he's gonna make is, hey, there's a church in Corinth, isn't there? How'd that come about? A lot of sarcasm laced in this. Hey, there's a church in Corinth. How'd that come about? By these methods. That's how I planted the church in Corinth. That's how I came to you and brought this, and the church came to be, it lived. Your very existence proves these methods work. Christian, your very life, the fact that you know Jesus proves this method of God by his spirit taking his word to change your heart and make you live. That's what works. That's what's needed. That's what Paul trusted in and that's what we are to lean into and embrace for how we build a church and for how we build our own lives, how we minister to others and minister to ourselves. So I think that as, as, I, as I work through just beginning this whole big section, as I work at trying to think about what do I do with four and five, well, it, it gives me some information about how to go about a church ministry, but it also gives me, I think very importantly, it gives me and each of us information how to go about your own personal ministry to, to the family around you and to you yourself. We, we want to thrive, we want to grow, we want to succeed in the church, and, and we want to grow and succeed ourselves. We want to become true success. We want to become like Christ. We want to become a people who are obedient to him. Who are Christ-like. Who love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, soul, minds. And soul. We want that. We're Christians. How do you get that? Paul's Methods. You realize the problem in me is the stronghold at the center. It it's been pierced once. I'm a Christian, but something in you is desperately patching up the holes all the time. I gotta I gotta solidify the defense again. They're gonna come back. You wanna dig in again? You wanna put up more rocks? That, that, something going on inside you? You're still falling. So you realize that's, that's still the deal is my heart still needs to be captured and torn down and torn down and torn down. How do I do that? I look to the gentle and lowly one and I realize he comes to me not to crush me, but to save me. He's a lion who loves me. I look to him and then I take up his word praying, Spirit of God, would you make the gospel run in here? Tear me up with it, please. For my good. And you take all the thoughts and all the arguments and all the lofty opinions that you have of yourself and that you encounter when you come into the world. This is how I feel. This is what must be true. Grab that. Take that. And apply to it. Whatever image works the glove that covers it, the hammer that breaks it, the the grappling hook that tears it down, whatever works for you, you apply to it the truth of God, praying, Lord, show me the folly of my lofty opinions and arguments and show me the truth of the knowledge of God. Please, for my good, break me. You take thoughts captive and put them beneath Christ, obeying him, asking him for help. And his, his breaking of you will actually feel so sweet and good and the light comes on and you see. I see. I, I thought that when I looked at my spouse who did not love me, that, that that was what I was doomed to. A life of lovelessness and so I should go somewhere else and look. I take that thought captive and I say, Lord, is that true or not? I'm... I'm struggling with that. And more than just knowing it's not right, he'll bash down the, the tower and the light will shine and you will see it as not right. And you'll be saved from that bit of wandering. Lord, I, I, I fear the, the consequences of, uh, of a change in the government and where that will take our country and where that will take our church. I fear that and I'm angry about that. I'm I'm struggling with that. What do I do? You take that captive and you put it beneath the truth of God. And he reminds you, oh, you know you shouldn't be afraid. You know you shouldn't be angry. You know that already. But as he takes that captive and tears it down, suddenly you find yourself trusting in the sovereignty of God who holds this country and this state and your family and your life in his hands just like he always did and is not remotely surprised about anything. So more than knowing you should be okay, you are okay. You take the thoughts, the fears, the ideas, the wonderings, you take them and you put them over here and apply to them. You put them beneath the truth of God. And you pray that the Spirit will attack the stronghold, the place of resistance in you and break through for your good. That's, that's how we go about wielding divine weapons in the search for success, in the search for growth, real growth, Christ-like dependence and love of God in Christ. That's what Paul does. Now, in a lot of ways, this section is just introductory to much that follows but we're on the right path and we're ready to read the rest of it and think about the rest of it if we've kind of got these two things in mind, two groups, two methods, one to be rejected and one to be embraced. One that doesn't work and one that does. We love a winner, and there's actually a way to get one. Maybe not how the world thinks, maybe not when the world thinks, but we're part of a kingdom that is eternal and that triumphs by divine means and methods that are very ordinary and very simple, but real and truly successful. Let's pray. Father, please father us. show us yourself by your spirit penetrate into the inner parts of us our hearts and show us yourself and make us new make us alert to what draws us and lures us and tempts us and to why it draws us and lures us and tempts us reorient our desires and timeline, our definitions, reorient us and fix us on you, cause us to hope in you. You are good, you are kind, and you are powerful. And for all of that we say thank you. Amen.